Today from the latter part of Peter's epistle, we look at what it means to live with the chronic pressure of trial, or what I've called Peter's counsel to the 21st century COVID-19 church. How should we live when we live under the constant demand and stress and pressure, be it of the coronavirus or perhaps just the routine, unchanging features of our daily life that are indeed chronic trials, even what we have seen early last week in 1 Peter 1, 5 through 6 about the trying of our faith. So look with me across these large major paragraph sections, and today I want to not so much settle in one passage of Scripture, but rather look at these six major paragraph units and see what Peter communicates to us as to how we should live in our uh, present moment of history. He says, first of all, guard your thinking. Arm yourself, he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. If you looked at this paragraph unit, there is a primary verbal phrase, and it's that phrase, as you've looked at Christ and seen his suffering in the flesh, here's what you need to do. You need to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Or we might say, think the same as Christ thought about suffering unjustly. He knew the redemptive purpose of his death. The, the words here, arm yourself, re- really picture the idea of getting ready for something, being prepared, putting everything uh, in order so that we might effectively accomplish something. He says, think the same way as Christ thought about suffering unjustly. If you looked at some of the earlier texts, 1 Peter 2, for example, uh, there's the whole stretch of Scripture where, where, where it is spoken of Christ, that, that he came in order that he might be the, the just one for the unjust, that by the offering of his precious blood he might himself pay for our sins, that he might indeed make redemption for us. Christ, you see, understood that all of the injustice that he experienced, all of the difficulty, all of the chronic unchanging features of his earthly life had a redemptive purpose, which of course was not for himself, but rather was for us. And so even as we begin to walk through this text, don't look beyond the work of Christ. For you see, Christ understood that his suffering had a redemptive purpose. And so we have to think the same, that our trial has a redemptive purpose that is first regarding our sanctification. Now I know that uh, that we might think that, that, that we're pretty well set in life, that there is not a whole lot of need for the reconstruction, for the renewal, for the uh, regeneration of our inner life. And yet, it, it is always true, I found in my life, and I'm sure in yours as well, that, that when God takes you through trial and difficulty, there is a redemptive purpose for you personally in that God always purifies in a greater way. He always brings out areas where there is yet need for progress, growth in godliness and holiness. And so re, uh, the, the trial we presently experience has a redemptive purpose for ourselves. But then it also has a redemptive purpose for others. I would hope in my life, in my ministry, even though we've been largely secluded in many different ways, that our trial has the purpose of testimony 
to people who do not now know Christ. And so there is redemptive purpose for my trial in that by my response, by my continued faith, by my love for Christ, that there will be witness uh, to others through our trial. He says, guard your thinking. Don't let the trial you experience so draw your focus to the difficulty of the moment that you forget that your trial has a redemptive purpose. It has a redemptive purpose for yourself. It has a redemptive purpose uh, for others as they watch, as they see, as you have opportunity to communicate the gospel of Christ. Then in chapters, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, he, he says, Act and react as a steward of God's grace. And you'll notice the text in verse 7 uh, says, The end of all things is at hand. And he walks through uh, some rather basic uh, issues of obedience, of service for Christ. He says, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Uh, keep loving one another earnestly. Show hospitality. Do, do that without grumbling. Uh, serve as God has placed you in different places. And so I have summarized it in this way. Continue to serve as you normally would. Do not let chronic trial and difficulty, whether it's past or present, what we will experience in coming days, do not let it uh, bring uh, a, a cessation of ministry. Continue to serve just as you normally would. Then he says, if you look at the latter part of uh, verses 10 and 11, use opportunities of service as good stewards of God's grace, serving by the strength which God supplies you'd even look at the latter part of that uh, phrase that Paul uses he speaks of strength which God supplies maybe, maybe Chris Ellis would really enjoy this phrase the, the, the word supplies there literally means or, or originally meant to lead a chorus and, and, and uh, it, it, it pictured someone that would give direction to a choir but the word here is really uh, developed beyond that where it's not merely God standing in front of us as a leader, but then providing for us, furnishing the provisions for us as we serve. So use opportunities of service as good stewards of God's grace. Act and react as stewards of God's grace. And it might be that you need to think here in these days to be a good steward of our present trial, of the of the difficulty in which we presently live and not waste it, but rather use it as good stewards of God's grace. And then further, you'll notice the end of the text, as it's quite common, he, Peter adds the doxological element, use opportunities of service to glorify God through Christ. And you'll find that at verse 11 where he says, understand the, the bigger purpose of God in drawing you through these trials. Thirdly, in the next paragraph unit, uh, Peter says, be ready for additional fiery trials. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials uh, when it comes upon you to test you as those some strange thing were happening to you. You'll notice his, his term, fiery trials. But we might say that grievous trials endured are really but phase one. He spoke of the grievous trials. 
in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And here he speaks of fiery trials. Uh, the, the fiery trial being a burning ordeal and obviously a reference to the trying of our faith that is more precious than gold, though it is tried with fire. Grievous trials are to be endured, but we should not be surprised, he says, at additional fiery trials when they come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. I find it interesting in my own experience that, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm surprised by difficulty. I'm surprised by chronic, seemingly unending difficulties. And yet Peter says, what you're presently experiencing likely is only phase one. There's another phase to follow. In It might be even more difficult than what you're presently living. Fiery trials, you see, are endured. And they're endured as a series of events that God brings into our life. And then he says in this paragraph, he says, he says rejoice when suffering for the name of Christ. And he literally speaks, it's really good when people abuse you and mistreat you because of your identity in Christ. That, that, that's kinship with Christ. They treated him that way. And so every follower of Christ is similarly, similarly uh, treated. But then further he says, repent when you suffer on account of sin. The latter part of that, he says, it's no really good thing about which to boast when we suffer for being foolish, for being sinful for foolhardy activities, for, for behavior that is not in alignment with the Word of God. And so when that occurs and you suffer, don't rejoice over that, but rather repent when suffering on account of sin. Peter then, in the next paragraph unit of this last major section of his epistle, he says, entrust, entrust your soul to God's care. Commit the keeping of your soul, is how I've memorized the old King James, or as the ESV has it, entrust the keeping of your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. The word entrust is a quite graphic word. It literally pictures the idea of picking something up and putting it at the feet of another person. It means to place by the side or to place near someone. It means to set before God, the, 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 the care of our life. And trust the keeping of your soul to God, to our faithful creator. I have often shared, and to be honest with you, I've often prayed, and now pretty much on a regular basis, I, I have shared this uh, paragraph prayer. Lord, I confess the, the truth that you have every right as my creator and savior to rearrange my life in any way to fulfill your plan for my life's influence for your glory. I know you do not need my permission to alter the course of my life. By faith I build my life on the premise that your will is always good, acceptable, and perfect. In doing your will I know that I not only find your best but my highest joy. I worship you in faith as your servant. Be it unto me according to your word. Now that's several words, but that's that word in trust. Where I say, God, you have every right as the 
Creator, as my Redeemer, to do anything you want with my life. I commit it to you, knowing that your will is always good, acceptable, and perfect. I do that even while doing good, while persisting in faith, in love, and obedience to Christ. But I do commit my life to you. You are the sovereign over my life. It's a little like the, the hymn that we often sing, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And trust the keeping of your soul to God, even while doing good. Then fifth, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Submit to God's under shepherds and and Peter now speaks to fellow elders, fellow pastors. And he says, here's the manner of life that you must display. Here are the responsibilities that you have. You need to shepherd the flock of God in which God has placed you as an under-shepherd. Don't do that by constraint, but do it willingly. Uh, not for personal gain, but rather as examples, not as lords. Uh, after all, when the chief shepherd appears... Uh, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. But then, broadening his perspective, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I would remind you, across several weeks we've tried to emphasize, I've tried to emphasize a, a little bit broader a more full idea of what grace is. Remember that grace is God's unilateral intervention in the most hopeless situations, working in a way that He alone can act with results that He alone can accomplish. So He says, clothe yourselves with humility. Submit to God's under-shepherds. Do that with each other. Because here's what God does. God opposes the arrogant, the proud, those who are independent but he gives grace to the humble. I so appreciated uh, during one of our uh, committee meetings, we, we have a committee that's been helping uh, provide guidance regarding procedures and policies and uh, when we should reopen ministries and, and how to do that and all kinds of ideas and a, a lot of them really helpful in broadening our thinking. And toward the end of the meeting, one of the participants in that committee expressed uh, to, to us as pastors meeting on that Zoom meeting, uh, saying, we've given you a lot of input, but, but we trust you as pastors to make wise and capable decisions as, you, as you've heard us and as you've received input. And that's exactly what Peter is saying when he says, submit to God's under shepherds, submit to each other, and do that because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I know that one of the weightier responsibilities that we have as pastors is, is the care of the membership of our church. It's the, the right oversight, the, the, the management, uh, the, the administration of the work of God in and through our church. It's that we might be godly examples and that we might uh, fulfill that, that role of elder in a way that really inspires confidence in our leadership. We carry that responsibility uh, uh, as those that serve under the authority of Christ. Submit to God's under shepherds, he says. And then finally, he says, humble yourselves 
to the God of all grace. And that's the text of Scripture that Pastor Brad read for us. Remember what grace is. And notice how he speaks of that again in this text. After you have suffered a little while, I have to remind myself that little while is not by my time clock, but rather is by God's. That little while may be all of my earthly life. After you have suffered a little while, and then notice what he says, the God of all grace. The God of all grace who unilaterally intervenes in the most hopeless situations, working in a way that he alone can act with results that he alone can accomplish. The God of all grace. Or in the text he says, the one who has called you to eternal glory in Christ. Not, not merely to fiery trials, but finally to ultimate glory. Will himself, the, 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 the way the verb is noted here it, it literally is that god himself christ himself will do something and you'll notice what he does here he restores uh, my eldest elizabeth is a practicing physician assistant and she's working at demos now and she 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 regularly practices what this verb says she takes a broken bone and puts it right, snaps it back into position. The word was used to describe the activity of mending nets. And so the one who has called you will himself restore, restore you to a right mind, will reconcile, will set you right with God. The God who has called you himself will confirm you, will make you fast, will prop you, will fix you. I know, even as we've been walking through these unusual days, how, how greatly I need God to confirm me, to, to make me fast. He will strengthen. That is, He will make you more able than you would ever possibly imagine. He will establish you. He will lay a foundation. He will uh, profoundly make you firm, not because you are firm, but rather because of where you stand. The one who has called you will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. And all, not so that I might be honored and glorified, but to him be the dominion forever and ever. And you can say with me just what the text does. Amen. So be it, God. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.